You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow, live from San Francisco in APEC. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, world leaders, they descend on San Francisco for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Full coverage from Ed ahead as we sit down with the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed. And we'll hone in on the battle for artificial intelligence dominance as the world's most valuable chip maker unveils new processes to maintain its edge. Plus, we'll break down the numbers from the world's largest online shopping event, China's Singles Day, and push ahead to e-commerce numbers from the likes of Walmart and Target coming later this week in the US. But first, we're going to be keeping a close eye on what's happening in China-US relationship more broadly from a global context. And we're going to be talking, of course, about the key leaders that are descending on San Francisco overall. We're going to be hearing that from the world of San Francisco. And we do want to welcome Ed in SF. Welcome to our Bloomberg television and radio audiences worldwide. San Francisco this week hosts APEC. We're joined by San Francisco's Mayor, London Breed. Mayor Breed, thank you for your time this morning. Of course. Look, there's one question that everyone has. Why has it taken the visit of US President Biden, China's President Xi, leaders from around the world for action on all of the problems that this city has been talking about for four years now. Well, just to be clear, we have been working on this now for a few years. This is not uh, an issue that we've been sitting around waiting uh, to solve. It's been something that San Francisco continues to work on. And since I've been mayor, since 2018, we've helped over 10,000 people exit homelessness. And we've never even had 10,000 people on our streets. We've seen a reduction when other Bay Area cities saw an increase. And so this is a problem that we continuously worked on. This year, fortunately, we've gotten additional resources from the state and the federal government that has really made a tremendous difference around the challenges that we're dealing with. A question from our audience that Mm -hmm. was submitted when they heard Mm -hmm. you were coming on the program is, Mm -hmm. uh, were people moved temporarily Mm -hmm. because of the events of this week from specific blocks and neighborhoods to others? Or was this a permanent action that was taken 
for what we see on the streets outside? Well, it was uh, an effort that took place. Uh, as you know, we had a, a court case where it limited our ability to move people off the streets. We still have a few hundred uh, beds available, and our street outreach team is out there every day. And after we got clarity from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, people who are offered shelter are no longer involuntarily homeless. So we are able to move them into housing, into treatment, into support. And so we have been very aggressive once we had that clarity to get people off the streets. Our goal is always to provide support, to provide compassion, but to not let people linger on our streets, especially when we're offering them an opportunity for housing. Our hope with what we've offered is that they will hold on to what we're making available to them. Mayor Breed, the frustration of San Franciscans mm -hmm. and the perception of the outside world is this happens every APEC or even mm -hmm. with Dreamforce. Uh, for a week, the city is cleaned up. Mm -hmm. It puts its best foot forward. But when everyone leaves on Friday or at the end of the week, you know, what guarantees can you give the city that this is permanent? that the actions the city's taken to address the problems we know about will continue? Well, just be, to be clear, APEC is a very unique event in San Francisco. We haven't had a, a, a global event of this magnitude since the United Nations was established. So it's a big deal. And after Dreamforce, things that we've done to keep the streets clean, to deal with the open air drug dealing and using have continued, which is why we're seeing a significant increase in how great the streets look of San Francisco. And also, just so you know, we have certain concentrated areas where there are challenges. Other major cities in the U.S. have the same problems. But in our neighborhoods and the outskirts of San Francisco, things have been looking up for a very long time. Uh, welcome to our Bloomberg television and radio audience worldwide. We're speaking with San Francisco Mayor London Breed. That's the case, right, that these issues are not unique or specific to San Francisco. Indeed, other Californian cities experience them. Why does the world think, though, that, that San Francisco is a problem city and sort of a portion uh, more blame in that sense than to other cities? Well, San Francisco has always been um, a larger-than-life city. People are always surprised to find out that our population isn't even a million people. We represent the entire Bay Area. It's a global city. It's the gateway to the Asia-Pacific. And so what the city has represented in history, whether it's the United Nations in 1945 or uh, the peace treaty with Japan in 1951, San Francisco continues to be that city that creates those global connections that is really oversized in terms of its image around the world. And it's one of the most beautiful, iconic places anywhere. So we're going to always get attention, whether it's good attention or bad attention, depends on what the story represents. And right now, APEC, all eyes are on the city. Artificial intelligence of the top 20 AI companies in the world, eight are in San Francisco, and they are growing rapidly. Autonomous vehicles are being tested here. We're seeing so many new technologies and things that are changing the world. And even during COVID, we were a leader and we saw one of the lowest death rates anywhere in the country. So San Francisco continues to get a lot of attention in, in various aspects and that will continue. And my hope is as a result of APEC, people will finally get to see what San Francisco is from their own experience. The, the, the centerpiece of this week for many is President President Biden meeting with President Xi and 
the expectation is there will be some discussion about fentanyl. Yes. If you had the opportunity to speak to President Xi this week, what would you ask of him in the context of fentanyl? Well, part of it is, you know, just to work with the U.S. and to ensure um, that the resources uh, that are being sent uh, out of China that come into either the U.S. or Mexico are cut off to the fullest extent possible, that we work together um, in order to ensure that this deadly poison that is killing people in San Francisco in significant numbers and all over the country, that we're able to combat this, to stop it, so that we can continue the relationship, the good relationship that always existed between China and the U.S. around trade, around business growth and development, uh, because right now this is a, a big part of uh, what I think is also having an impact on our relationship because it has been so deadly to the people of the United States. Mayor Breed, who will you be meeting with this week and, and what are you hoping to achieve when the week ends? Well, I'm hoping to meet with a number of the leaders who are coming uh, to San Francisco from the various economies. I'll be saying hi. There'll be very brief hellos and meetings and uh, just welcomes to San Francisco and hopefully an opportunity, you know, not just to talk about the challenges, but to talk about the business opportunities and how San Francisco uh, can be an important part of uh, the economies of these various countries because many of the growth and development around AI and new technologies are being developed right here. Going into this week, Mayor Breed, you'd announced jointly with Mark Benioff that Dreamforce will return next year. Has Mr. Benioff given you any guarantees that Dreamforce will stay in San Francisco beyond 2024? Well, right now, next year, uh, uh, Salesforce is con committed to hosting Dreamforce in San Francisco. Uh, Mark is a San Franciscan. He loves this city, and we'll continue to work very closely with him to ensure next year's success, as well as hopefully uh, future Dreamforce success in San Francisco. Uh AI, it's clearly top of mind for everyone, not just this week, but throughout 2023 here in this city. You know, we've talked about all of the square foot of office space that has been filled by AI. You know, dozens of startups have been founded in this city. What action will you take this week to continue that? You know, what initiatives are you trying to put in place to continue the growth that AI seems to be centering in our city? Well, part of it is San Francisco has never had to work hard for business, for tourism and conventions. And what that means is, you know, we need to change a lot of our codes and things that limit people's ability to do business in San Francisco. We were always, you can only be a bank in the financial district or you can only have a retail establishment here. And many of the policies that I've already proposed allow for diversifying uh, places like the building we are in now today so that it's used for more than just office space. It could be used for lab space. You know, we have a 3.4 vacancy rate for lab space. Yes. And so we could use a building like this for that purpose. It should be able to easily convert but it. But is your office, Mayor Bree, directly involved in those conversations, kind of bringing private sector to opportunities that you're aware of in our city? We definitely are. I mean, I can't is a perfect example of a, of a space that sat empty that wouldn't have been possible had we not bridged that gap to make it possible for IKEA to go into that space. So we're doing both. We're changing policies based on you know the communities and the people who are property owners to allow for their uh, properties to be used for more than just one use. Uh, we're making planning code changes and we're trying to just make it easier so that the process is not as cumbersome in trying to deliver something different and unique and diverse 
for San Francisco business. Mayor Breed, until very recently, San Francisco was the only city in the world that had two robo-taxi companies operating 24-7 and charging a fare for driverless rides. Cruise's permit was revoked. Uh, I appreciate that's the jurisdiction of the DMV and the CPUC, but if crews were able to demonstrate they fixed the issues that the regulators were concerned about, would you support their permit being reinstated? Well, we actually have three, um, including Zooks, which is a lot smaller, I know, and Waymo. But they're not charging fares yes. to the public. Yes, right? and so our hope is that, you know, this is really about safety and security and transparency. And my hope is that crews can um, get things uh, in order in order to be back on the streets of San Francisco, uh, but they really are going to need to build the trust of the people here in the city. And I know that we don't directly make the decision, uh, but we're still here to work with this technology because we are excited that autonomous vehicles are uh, in San Francisco, are testing in San Francisco, are able to uh, be a new uh, transportation network as a part of San Francisco, but we have to ensure that it's a safe uh, network of transportation as well. San Francisco Mayor, London Breed, a big week for APEC 2023. Thank you so much Thank you. for your time. Back to you. And a big conversation with you, Ed. We thank you so much for it. Meanwhile, coming up, the world's most valuable chip maker but it's upgrading its processor as rivals try to challenge its own AI dominance. I'm going to bring you all the details around NVIDIA's updated H200 next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Buble's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
world's most valuable chip firm, NVIDIA, and it's upgrading its all-important H100 AI processor in an effort to maintain its dominance in the artificial intelligence field. New model, guess what, called H200, will get the ability to use kind of high bandwidth memory to better cope with the huge data sets needed for developing, for training, for implementing AI. Joining us now, the man behind the story, Bloomberg's Ian King, and it feels as though the darling of AI isn't resting on its laurels. It sees AMD, it sees Intel, and it has to keep on innovating. No, that, that's exactly it. I mean, we, we asked an executive over there exactly that question. Oh, is this, is this you covering up, um, you know, what the competition is going to bring to market soon? And they were like, no, no, no. As soon as we can do something, we do it. We just move forward as quickly as we can on every front. And that's very much their stance. Um, and that's what's kept them ahead so far. Remind us why they are so far ahead. Originally, of course, all about gaming, but they've just managed to offer to particularly, well, the cloud companies something unique, the data center focus. I mean, it's a, it's a mixture of uh, right place, right time, and, and seeing things coming ahead of time. Their technology fundamentally is very good at parallel computing. Parallel computing is the answer to training these artificial intelligence programs. You basically have to bombard them with lots of information and the ability to do these small calculations in parallel is absolutely central to that. They put the software in place, they put the systems in place, and right now they're the only real game in town mm. despite everybody else's attempts. I mean, it's funny, we had, what, Kai-Fu Lee talking to Bloomberg TV on the end of last week talking about how he had stocked up in H100s, Elon Musk, I mean, you name it, anyone really had been out there trying to demonstrate their strength in AI by how much of a hoard of H100s they had. What about the supply chain of this, Ian? How much are we likely to see sort of the backlogs continue? I mean, the, the company has said, you know, that they are taking giant leaps forward in terms of availability of these chips, which, which sounds great. But then if you go online and try to, to buy one, you see a list price of 28 grand and not currently available. Then you go and try to get one on the gray market and you see a, a price of $40,000 and upwards. So that tells its own story. Clearly, these things are in extremely high demand. Clearly, NVIDIA is selling as many as they can possibly make. Make. And until AMD, Intel, and, and anybody else can be in the market with a, a, a rival that, that can turn people's eyes in a different direction, it's likely to remain the case. I feel like we need a whole other conversation about the grey market and how that is evolving. But and tell us a little bit about, ultimately we were sitting down with Kai-Fu Lee because there's this issue about sanctions on Chinese, on these US chips being shipped to China. And we know that NVIDIA front and centre has had to change the chips in which it can send. How much of an issue has that been? I mean, obviously H200s aren't getting over there, I assume. Yeah, no, the H100 didn't get over there either. Um, you'll remember a, a while ago, restrictions were imposed. Basically, a year ago, restrictions were imposed by the US. The time um, that looked like it was going to be the end for these high-level chips in China, what NVIDIA did was read the rules really carefully and come up with something that was essentially a workaround. Chinese got their own versions of, the, of these chips, not as good, but still pretty good. New rules have come out, which basically blocked those off. So and now we've seen reports about NVIDIA taking another step to come up with another version that would essentially circumvent these rules. Ian King always got the technicalities, the movements at play as we look towards the 21st as well with our all-important numbers. We thank you so much.
Time now for Talking Tech. First up, a big swing and a miss for Disney's Marvel Universe. The newest film in the franchise, The Marvels, managed to generate $47 million in US and Canadian theatre ticket sales this weekend. Look, it's the lowest opening ever for an MCU film. Much of the blame is sort of being pointed at poor marketing due to the SAG-AFTRA strikes that finally ended last week. Meanwhile, Salesforce is naming Denise Dresser as the new CEO of Slack. Now, Dresser served as the president of Accelerated Industries over at Salesforce and was previously an executive vice president for enterprise sales. Dresser takes the helm at Slack after the previous CEO, that's Lydian Jones, announced she was leaving to go and take over at Bumble. Plus, Google suing five unidentified scammers that allegedly tricked users into installing malware on their devices. But the scammers used social media to encourage users to download a fake version of its AI chatbot Bard. This fake download later allowed scammers to access users' social media accounts. Google is suing for breach contract and trademark infringement. Meanwhile, let's talk about Google in a legal context a little bit more. It has beefed up the quality of its search engine, but only after it was pressured by the European Union regulators. That's according to the internal documents by the US DOJ, claiming Google's failure to willingly make improvements proves it's illegally maintaining its monopoly. This is while Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai is about to testify tomorrow in a separate antitrust fight, this time with Epic Games. As always, there's a lot going on. And we're pleased to welcome Multi Nayak, who joins us now for more on all of this. And ultimately, let's just talk about Epic Games for a moment, because it's not just Alphabet, Google, that they've had issued with the Play Store. They take issue at many an app store. But tell us what they think that they'll get out of Sundar Pichai tomorrow, Multi. So Epic is trying to, to prove that Google struck these secret deals with Activision and Riot Games and other competitors to stop them from building their own third-party app stores. And I think they will question Pichai tomorrow in some of these agreements which they've already shown in court. And they'll also try to show that Google tried to strike these deals with OEMs to make sure that the Google Play app store was prominently featured on uh, Android phones. So that's what they're going to focus on tomorrow. And they're also going to quiz him on some of the business aspects um, and some of the policies related to the Google App Store. Um, so and Google's lawyers are going to then ask Pichai uh, to explain why some of these policies are justified. You know, Google has to strike these deals to compete with big competitors like apps, like the Apple App Store, as well as uh, ensure that there's security and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, good mm. features for um, developers as well as a safe platform for users. And therein, they try to vindicate the 30% cut that they and well other app stores take from these developers. I'm interested in the nuance of that, of how much they you think they will be able to land the idea that this isn't paying developers to you know, make okay with a 30% cut, but you're paying developers to come and build on the Google Play Store rather than just going to Apple iOS individually. Of course, they're definitely going to focus on, you know, Google's lawyers already have begun arguing that, you know, uh, the 30% cut is justified because we're giving developers a platform to reach some of the largest users, uh, mobile users in the world. So in terms of having this platform in the first place and providing all these features and programs for developers to build their businesses on their platform, you know, the 30% uh, cut is justified for them to actually be able to invest in this platform to keep it safe for users to make sure that it's a good place for developers to come and build businesses that can thrive. Just going back to the broader context here, Multi, like how 
out of the ordinary is it for CEOs have to get up to be summoned in this way to give evidence in this manner? So we've seen a lot of CEOs this year already. We've had Elon Musk, who's been quite, you know, uh, um, uh, been appearing quite quite often in some of these cases. Sundar Pichai, it's actually going to be his second time in almost uh, two and a half weeks, because just two weeks ago, he was in D.C. testifying in the Google antitrust case related to the DOJ's claims that Google's ad search business is anti-competitive. So, you know, uh, here he is again two weeks late, two and a half weeks later, he's going to be here tomorrow, uh, you know, testifying. So I think he's going to slowly get, you know, seasoned in terms of being at the witness stand also. Uh, but sometimes yeah. these CEOs serve as, you know, the conscience of the company. So it interesting to see how he defends. Thank you, Malti Nayak, all things alphabet. From New York, this is Bloomberg Technology. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get a quick check on the markets as we're basically halfway through a trading day. And we're looking at, well, I mean, flat to lower now on the Nasdaq 100 off by a quarter of a percentage point. Just think how far, how fast we have managed to rally in the month of November so far. Of course, appetite back in tech as we potentially see the peak of hiking cycle for the Federal Reserve. All important CPI number, inflation data coming tomorrow. So it's a macro context. So I look at what's happening in the world of chip makers because NVIDIA's on the higher side, but well, nothing else really is and the SOX is currently off by more than a percentage point at the moment. Bitcoin on the downside. Let's have a look at what's happening in Asia though. China in particular. This is the Nasdaq Golden Dragon and I shine a light on it because it's of course the internet companies that trade here in the US. Notably higher. Now is this more about the hope that China will be adding some stimulus to the economy? We are worried about a weaker consumer there at the moment. Nevertheless we do see a little bit of appetite and buying on that particular exchange and this as we have some idiosyncratic news around certain names. Let's just take a light on Didi for example. Chinese ride-hailing leader. It has posted its first profit since 2021, actually, sustaining gradual recovery ahead of a 2024 Hong Kong listing. The company's revenue actually rose 25% in September quarter, suggesting that it's making some headway in an effort to regain market share. Back in 2021, regulators launched a probe, remember, into its data handling and forced it to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. Meanwhile, it's been China's most important shopping festival and was held over the weekend. It's called Singles Day in an annual bargains extravaganza. Remember, Alibaba really popularized it over about a decade ago. While the event is usually dominated by e-commerce platforms, Alibaba, JD.com, Pinduoduo, smaller streaming platforms, Douyin, Kuaishu, they're able to have some breakthrough performances, it would seem. Let's get an expert on this. Jacob Cook, CEO at e-commerce consultancy, WPIC Marketing and Technologies, staying up extremely late for us over there in Asia. And we really appreciate it, Jacob. Just was the 11th of 11th a good day for these sorts of players? Did company, the individuals come out and spend more than we anticipated? Well, they certainly did at the start of the shopping festival. I think the legacy platforms were seeing sort of low single-digit increases, maybe even around the 3% mark in your T-Malls and your JDs. Really, I think what you were saying before really is the big story. Your Douyin's, your Red Books, um, your Kwai shows that are really reporting triple-digit gains on where they were last year. You know, overall, probably low double digits uh, in terms of where the shopping festival was last year. That's down from where we were in previous years. But, you know, behavior is really changing and how people are shopping online is changing online in China too. Yeah, articulate how that is. I mean, we know that a consumer is under stress at the moment in terms of an economic slowdown. Are they therefore looking for deals or is it the places they go to shop has changed? 
Well, I think both are true. Um, they certainly are looking for deals, and there was a lot of deals this year. You know, there was intense competition between Tmall and JD. Um, but you know, like I said, we have single-digit increases in those platforms while they're fighting for market share, and just incredible triple-digit increases on more of the live streaming platforms like mm. like Kwaisho and Douyin. Uh, Douyin alone, I think, was reporting 120% up over last year. Little Red Book, you know, three to 400%. These are huge numbers, and they really, you know, are are, are really showing us how the difference is and, and just the way that people are shopping through live streaming now really becoming mainstream. Okay, so is that the case that people, no matter where they are, are just flicking through their phone, they're on some sort of TikTok-like offering and they're getting the offerings in there? Or are people singling out streamers in particular because it's some sort of entertainment for them? I mean, some of them are absolutely incredible at what they do, it seems. Yeah, people are pretty loyal to the streamers that they're finding. Now, certainly they are out there looking for deals. But, I mean, you know, a lot of times when they're logging on to these platforms, they don't know or they're not coming there with the pre-intended purchase intent. You know, with Tmall and JD, you see a lot of people like, like Lululemon reporting huge numbers. Apple had a great turnout. But with the live streamers, they're really going for product recommendations. They're going for great deals. But when they tune into these shows... Maybe they didn't know what they were going to buy beforehand. So it's really mean, I think, when we talk about more bringing products to people as opposed to people to products. And this is really the trend going forward. And we just see this continuing on uh, with really no end in sight unless the other platforms really do, uh, you know, make a play it here. But this is it's just huge. It's a huge trend. And we're seeing it in other parts of Asia as well. Tell us a little bit about where the money flows here. I mean, there's a great story on the terminal today all about the top China live streamer. He's known as Lipstick King because he's really good at selling cosmetics as well, it would seem. But actually, his old numbers, look, they're coming from third parties, like Southern Metropolis Daily is reporting, around his own numbers having gone down a lot from this time last year. How is he making money? How are the companies that are selling through him making money? And, and actually, is he not doing as well as he was in previous times? Well, that's a big question. I mean, certainly he's making a lot of money. I mean, when we go back to the tax evasion cases that we had a couple of years ago, the abated taxes that were made public were in the hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars, which if you extrapolate back means their income is in the billions of U.S. dollars. Um, yeah, certainly people are... Um, the one thing with cosmetics is it's the repeat purchase. So brands are willing to lose money and to be able to go on his show at extreme discounts, maybe even sell below cost, in the you know, hopeful that people will come back and buy that product again. You know, that doesn't work for large durables or things like that. But, you know, there's just a ton more live streamers out there. And even men now are, are tuning into these shows where it was primarily, you know, a really female-dominated demographic before. Um, so, yes, the live streamers are making a ton of money. The platforms are making a ton of money. The brands... Not so much, but it still is a great way to reach millions of consumers in 15 minutes. Sat in the U.S., sat in the U.K., in Western economies, people are very au fait with following influencers and starting to see more ads or understanding when they're getting product placement. But ultimately, would this style of shopping ever translate, do you think? Well, I think what you, the TikTok numbers that are being reported so far, we've seen numbers out of Malaysia, out of Great Britain, and that it is catching on. Um, so, yes, we do expect it to catch on in other parts. You know, it's not a lot different than, you know, what we'd have seen with QVC a while ago. It's a little bit different than, say, just a normal influencer and the fact that you have an audience that is coming in to buy. We know that they're there to shop. They're usually in your right demographic. Whereas maybe when you're talking about an influencer, you're there, you know, kind of surfing and you're influenced about a product. But the live streaming model is really a more direct sale. And yes, we absolutely expect this to, to catch on in other markets.
Jacob Cook, staying up at what, past 1 a.m., I think, it with you. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, WPIC. We appreciate the context. Meanwhile, later this week, we're going to be getting a glimpse into how much consumers have reined in, potentially, their discretionary spending here in the United States. Two, Walmart, Target reporting earnings, to mention but a few. It's a vital holiday season approaching, of course. Jennifer Bartashis is with us at Bloomberg Intelligence. And are we likely to see what we were just hearing about in China, the fact that discounters are doing well at the moment, companies able to shift product if they've got the right price point? Is that what's going to happen here in the U.S. as well? Yeah, I think that is definitely what we're going to see as we go through third quarter earnings. Um, there is a flight to value in the United States, and the consumer is uh, shopping the channels where they feel that they can get a good value. So we think that discount stores, um, some of the off-price stores, are poised to do well this quarter um, just because of that's where the consumer is headed. So look out for Ross stores, look out for TJX. Ultimately, what is the sort of mix of in-store, I mean, I think of a TJX and I think of going there in person and rifling through very close-quartered clothes that you can hardly see, but I'm interested as to whether or not people are doing that online more and more, or is that more of a Walmart target play? Well, when you're talking about the off-price stores, it really still is a hunt and discovery type of environment. So people are still going into those stores to search for value. When you're talking about the discount stores like a Walmart or a Target, it's more of a combination of both online and in-store shopping. Um, and when we look at traffic of visits into the discount stores, um, although across all of retail traffic is down year over year, it is up to the discounters. Um, and that's based on Placer AI data. So that gives a little um, context confidence that these uh, these people who play in the value space um, are attracting those customers. It's interesting. We're just looking at intraday moves. Macy's off by some 3%, of course. Owner of Bloomingdale's, owner of Blue Mercury, some often a more high-end luxury kind of a purchase that's going on even at the Macy's stores as well. But they've had a big focus on investing in online, in marketplace offerings, in AI. Is that going to be something we hear from everyone, this whole focus on data and AI? Well, I think that across retail, you know, there's a lot of investment that happens with regards to the omnichannel experience. Consumers now really want to have a flawless experience, whether they're in person or whether they're shopping online. And so that is an area where investment is likely to continue, um, just because it really is about meeting customers where their interest is and where the demand is. Um, and that's really not retailer specific. That's really happening across the entire industry. It's going to be a busy week for you, Jennifer Batashas. Thank you so much for walking us through ahead of all those retail earnings from Bloomberg Intelligence. Meanwhile, coming up, global crypto venture funding, well, funnily enough, is down. In fact, it's hit a low that we haven't seen since about 2020. We're going to talk about it all with the latest data from PitchBook. That's next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. 
good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts crypto venture funding. Well, it's hit a recent low amid, of course, the unwinding of Terra Luna, the collapse of FTX. Dare we mention what else was happening last year? According to new data from PitchBook, crypto venture funding fell by 63% year over year to just $2 billion in the third quarter. It's all according to PitchBook crypto analyst Robert Lane. We're pleased to welcome him to the show. And I mean, perhaps unsurprising with the fallout that VC appetite has remained low. But VCs are sitting on a whole ton of cash, some of them, I think, of AC in particular when it comes to crypto, why aren't they putting money to work in some of the projects? Yeah, well, thanks for having me here again, Caroline. Um, well, first of all, this is not really a symptom specifically in crypto. It's more of the broader venture mm -hmm. markets. So, you know, we track uh, investments across the entire venture ecosystem and it's down for Q3 as well. So you're seeing that the same thing. So what you're seeing in the crypto space is basically what venture investors are doing. They're taking the time to, to talk to founders. They're taking the time to understand what the business models are, how they're operating, and then they're going to slowly deploy capital. You know, we talked about this last time. You know, just the, the pace of, of investing and the process of investing has been much, much slower. I think with crypto, what, the unique aspect is there's still regulations that they have to think about, right? And then it's really nascent. All the technologies that are being built is, is very nascent. So um, I think that is part of the slowdown, too, is, is specifically in crypto. It's those two things. Let's talk about some of the regulatory questions, because actually many, I'm sure, who will gather around their Thanksgiving table this month will say they had some big wins when it came to the SEC, sort of unable to enforce the way in which they thought they were. The fact that they lost against initially against the grayscale yeah. element of in turning into an ETF, they, it seems that they've dropped their issues with, with Ripple in particular. Does that spell that the SEC isn't going to have as many teeth? Yeah, honestly, we think what's going to happen is that the SEC is going to inevitably approve some of the things that are happening in this space. So first, we think the spot Bitcoin ETF is going to get approved in the next few months. And now we just saw last week, BlackRock is applying for a spot ETH ETF uh, as well, ETF as well. So we think those things are going to help the crypto space because it's going to increase the liquidity mm -hmm. in the space. I think right now we're in a liquidity constrained market. So a lot of the products don't really work well. Lending markets, credit markets are not working as well, especially in the DeFi space because of the lack of liquidity. We think that, you know, as the SEC is kind of have to force to play its hand to really look at these products. And if they do reject, they have to give a really good reason. And right now, we haven't heard any good reason that the SEC is going to give for not having any of these exchange-traded products on the market. They've already allowed a Bitcoin exchange um, features on the market. 
And so, you know, I, I, you look at what BlackRock is arguing in their filing is that, look, these things are going to be uh, correlated to the spot markets no matter what. They're priced, the features um, products, they're priced to the spot market, right? And then the surveillance is the same way that, that BlackRock can do the surveillance as well with NASDAQ and Coinbase and all these other exchanges. So we think it's going to happen, but it's going to get the approval and it's really going to be a great benefit for the crypto markets. I mean, Larry thinks U-turn, I'm going to call it, has not been lost on many. And the fact that ultimately, I'm sure, his about face on the infrastructure behind crypto is probably in large part because his clients want it. Yep. Talk to us about whether that institutional demand is really there, because that's what you hear a lot from the crypto space. But then we're just trying to see the data, basically. We, we do think it's there. And, and I, I think that is why all these asset managers are getting to, into it. And it's also... You don't want to be the asset manager that didn't spend the investment, the time, and the, the resources to offer crypto service to your clients. Mm. And if a bull market returns and then you're not offering those services, your clients are going to go to another asset manager. So, you know, we, we've estimated that just on the Bitcoin side for the ETF, there's roughly between 50 to $80 billion of demand for a, a, a spot ETF. So, um, and I think that, you know, that's going to continue to increase as well. So that, that definitely is a lot of uh, demand. It's not just um, custodying and holding asset and being able to buy it in a regulated way. You know, there's all these other services, trade services, prime brokerage, um, you know, so the opportunity for asset managers and banks to offer like an in, a wedge for their clients to, to get uh, access to it. But then even think about ETH. ETH is pretty complicated because if you offer an ETH ETF, there's staking, mm -hmm. right, that's involved. So how does that work for clients and, and how do they measure their returns on that and all that? So there, there is a lot of client demand. Very quickly, where does the money get apportioned? To the startups or to Bitcoin and ETH? Oh, that's a, that's a difficult question. I, I, I think it's, it's different because venture investors are the one that is investing in the startups. They're not really buying um, ETH and, and Bitcoin, maybe a little bit, or maybe um, on, on, like through through like foundations and stuff that they invest in. But for the most part, we think that, like you said at the beginning of the segments, that a lot of dry powder in the crypto space exists. You know, we know A16Z. They have the 4.5 billion dollar fund that is still a good amount of capital left in that fund. And there's these other funds that they raise. That's their fourth crypto fund, by the way. So all of that capital is going to go to the startups. And then I think on the for Bitcoin and ETH, you're going to see more of the traditional mm -hmm. asset managers and all that, investors that would, would um, buy into um, Bitcoin and ETH and some of the more strong uh, alternative uh, tokens. Lackluster numbers this quarter, but maybe a bit of optimism in the future. Pitchbook Crypto Analyst, we love having Robert Lay. Thank you very much indeed. in on the digital health landscape and parents this is one for you pediatric telehealth startup summer health is unveiling a new platform everyday care for $20 a month parents will have 24 7 access to their own personalized team of providers in the same way that look you would text your family your friends for a photo for a video basically for an update on whether you think your kids sick or not and then to silver summer health CEO and founder is with us to tell us why there is this demand at the moment. What particularly is at breaking point that means that parents need an ability to have telehealth far more easily? 
Yeah, um, Caroline, thanks so much for having me on today. The average American child sees their pediatrician for seven minutes per year. Hmm. So imagine, how much can you really get done in seven minutes? We have discovered that by having always on care through Summer Health's new everyday care platform, we can offer that primary care around the clock. Um, so today, Summer Health is expanding beyond just urgent care, those episodic needs, to actually assigning a provider to your account for everyday care needs. I'm trying to get to grips with how you make the money because $20 is, well, really rather reasonable when you think about the cost of healthcare. So I'm trying to understand where do you get the revenue streams from? How are do people, of course, that you're bringing onto your telehealth to offer their services, how are they getting the money as well? Yeah, so Summer Health is a subscription service. It's $20 per month or $192 per year. Many of our customers actually pay that annual plan. And it's basically the cost of a copay. Um, we have the most high quality providers on the platform because we have developed our own proprietary backend for our providers. We've actually leaned into AI quite a bit to give the doctors at their fingertips the most uh, simple to use and easy to access uh, resource to give uh, parents the most personalized solution. You're backed by really some heavyweights in the world of VC, Sequoia, Lux Capital, Box Group, I mean, individuals as well. Where are they thinking that you're a solution that just isn't being offered elsewhere? Yeah, well, I have yet to see a telemedicine platform that really leans into continuous care. We hear the clamor growing louder, especially from parents, but certainly from Americans uh, all over the country, that they're looking for a physician to really get to know them, hmm. get to know their family, get to know, know their family's needs. What Summer Health has been able to do is develop that kind of always-on care by being there continuously and forging a relationship by assigning a provider to your account. Um, what we see other telemedicine platforms do is basically you can sort of parachute in for that one-off moment and, and step out, and they don't really get to know you. So that's where we're moving. It's interesting that, you know, I was there trying to get an appointment for my son for an ear issue on the Friday because I knew I had to go in to see someone and there wasn't a single doctor available in the whole of the county. I'm interested as to how do you solve for that element that at the end of the day, a lot of these things, a doctor just has to have a look. Yeah, we've actually been pleasantly surprised by how much we can do via telemedicine. Um, a lot can be done with a recorded video or a photo that we can treat. Uh, our providers, if you have a respiratory issue, for example, snap a video and our doctors can hear that cough over and over again. Our providers actually think it's better than some of the video uh, chat care because they can see it time and time again. Um, we also have the benefit of working with a great pharmacy provider so that we can locate medicine that's out of stock for you and, and let you know when that medicine is available for your family so you're not waiting for an hour in the pharmacy for that medication. Boy, I feel that. I'm interested in just ultimately the moment we just talked about the VCs that are backing you. Are you needing to raise more funds? How is that ongoing conversation? I'm sure every founder out there is having it, but have you managed to get some sort of runway? Yeah, so we're, we're very grateful to to be backed by Sequoia Capital, Lux, Chelsea Clinton's Metrodora, and other amazing VCs who have supported us through this journey. We're growing rapidly. We hope other parents will come join us, and that thankfully has been fueling our growth. So um, we're, we're in a great position right now. Ellen, great to have some time with you. And for every parent out there, we feel you when it comes to perhaps uh, the current illnesses that are floating around. Ellen De Silva, we thank our Summer Health CEO and founder. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. You do not want to forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. 
from New York and of course back where the Asia Pacific event is happening over in San Francisco where Ed is, this is Bloomberg Technology. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.